This message is brought to you by Cedar Springs Church. For more information, please visit cedarspringschurchnm.org. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the gift of worship that you've given us, the, uh, the redemption that you've called us to, uh, the hope and the peace and the mercy that you've, you've given us and shown us. Father, we pray you would continue to do that now as we turn to your word and seek to know you better, seek to find our Savior and, and see his work and power in our lives so that we can again be grown and changed into a better image of him and therefore be able to worship you still better. So, Father, it is in his name that I pray. Amen. Well, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 13 this morning, if you want to start heading there in your Bibles. But before we jump into that passage, as we continue looking at our series that that I've titled The Advent in Exodus, let me catch you up to where we are in the story up to Exodus chapter 13. By the time we get to this chapter... God has done some very miraculous things. We, we already saw in Exodus 3 how he showed up to, to Moses uh, in the burning bush and told him how he had heard his people's cry, so he was there to rescue them. But then in chapters 4 through 10, God performs a series of miracles through Moses to, to loosen Pharaoh's grip on his people. He, he turned water into blood. He sent plagues of, of gnats and, and flies and, and all kinds of other weird things, frogs, locusts not to mention diseases, none of which affected God's people, by the way. It only affected the Egyptians. However, in, in chapters 11 and 12, right before this, God sent His final judgment on Egypt, which was the death of the firstborn. And that affected every living creature, cows, chickens, everything, including people. And God did all of that because Pharaoh refused to free Israel from her slavery until now. Finally, just look at the first few words of our passage in verse 17, Exodus chapter 13, verse 17. Just look at the first few words. When Pharaoh let the people go. So they've finally been freed from slavery. This is a great day. In fact, four times in the first part of of, uh, chapter 13, uh, it says, the strong hand of the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. Four times it says that. This is an incredible moment. They're finally on the road to homes and and crops and fields that are their own. That's where we are leading up to this. With that in mind, let's read our passage. Exodus chapter 13, verse 17. It says, When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of of Joseph with him. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by, by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of, the, of cloud and by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. 
Now, what I want you to do is this. I want you to put yourself somewhere in the middle of this massive exodus of people leaving Egypt. Somewhere in the middle of, of a million odd people. You're finally leaving. So, so the morning of the first day, you head east out of northern Egypt. The atmosphere is electric. The kids still have all their snacks. Everything is awesome. Because there's the pillar of cloud in, the, in, the, in, the, in front of you. You can see him in the distance. God is leading his people home. That's the first day. The next day, as you continue, you, you, you notice the pillar of cloud start heading southeast. That's odd. Maybe there's some river crossing or a mountain that, that we need to go around. Oh, oh, well, that's the second day. But the next morning, as you begin to move again, now you notice the pillar of cloud turns due south. And the further you travel, you begin to notice on your left, <clears throat> as far as your eye can see, huge mountains in the distance. Mountains that are so big that, that it would keep a single person from going north, much less a massive crowd of people. But north is where the promised land is. North is where peace is. North is where God said he was going to take his people. I mean, maybe God still knows something you don't, but my Apple Maps say we missed a turn. That's the third day. On the morning of the fourth day, you see the pillar of cloud continue even further south. Now you're beginning to see ocean on your right-hand side. There's something wrong. If we're going to the promised land, the ocean should be on our left. We are completely backwards somehow, some way. Where's God going? Did the mighty hand of God need to stop and ask for directions? I mean, we're at Etham of all places. That is in the exact opposite direction of the promised land. So what do you do? You know you're heading in the wrong direction from where you know you're supposed to go. What do you do? Do you push your way to the front? Excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. Tap the pillar of fire on the back. Hey, God, um, I know you're busy. Thanks for all the plagues and, and that, but um, I, just, you know, I think we're headed the wrong direction. Now, I know that sounds ridiculous. Like, yeah, what kind of idiot would do that? But don't we do that all the time? All the time, don't we, metaphorically speaking, tap God on the back and say, are you sure? This doesn't seem right. God, I'm, I'm just checking, but, you know, a, a healthy marriage and family is that way. God, I thought you said this life would be peaceful and, and joyful and content. I think we might have missed a turn. God, I just wanted to remind you, it's been 20 years. Well, um, it kind of seems like maybe you forgot. But I made plans to be successful. And I could go on, but, but just insert whichever part of your life you think is headed in the wrong direction and you get the idea. So I've titled this message, Are You Sure We're Not Lost? 
Because I want to talk to you today about those times in our lives that seem like God is, is really headed in the wrong direction. This morning, Gary talked about darkness turning to light, and we see that in Scripture. But in our lives, we don't see it so much. So I want to talk to you about our lives before that light is apparent, when it still seems dark. I want to persuade you this morning that no matter where you are, no matter which direction God is taking you, no matter how difficult or scary or painful your situation in life is now, in the past, in the future, no matter when, I want to convince you this morning that God's way is always best. That God's way is always best. Let's get into it. Look at verse 17 again, where the first thing we see is that God's way is always prudent. His way is always prudent. He said, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of land of the Philistines, although that was near. Why? Because God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. Now, when Moses says that God did not lead them by the way of the Philistines, what he means is God did not lead them north along the Mediterranean Sea. It was called the Via Maris, and it was an ancient trading route that flanked the Mediterranean Sea all the way from Egypt through Canaan, through the Promised Land, all the way up north through modern-day Turkey. It was a, a well-established road. It was not only the shortest route to the Promised Land, but it was really the only route. Nobody in their right mind would go through this wilderness to get to the Promised Land. But the problem was exactly that. Because it was such a, a well-established road, the only really road from the north to the south, that went through multiple different nations, it was the road that armies took to move from place to place. So it was heavily guarded. The Egyptians had outposts far to the north, along with the Philistines and the Canaanites, in order to, to guard against invasions, early warning signs. Think of it like multiple heavily guarded border crossings. And God knew that His people were not ready for that kind of warfare. He knew his people would be overwhelmed by the battle and want to tuck tail and run back to Egypt. In fact, this was confirmed a little bit later, when, about a year later, when Moses sent 12 spies into Canaan. And 10 of them came back and said, we can't do this, they're too scary. So how about you? Do you ever think about God like that when you're in one of those moments that doesn't seem right? Like maybe God knows what you need better than you do. And maybe God has you where you are now because He knows you can't handle what's coming until you experience where He has you right now. That God knows you need some wilderness in order for you, listen, in order for you to be able to do the incredible things that He has for you to do in the future. Listen, God's way is always prudent. In Exodus 13, God knew His people, they needed to experience something. He knew they needed to see something before they were ready to fight for the promised land. He knew His people needed to be backed up against an ocean in order for them to see Him part it like He was clearing a spider web off of a trail. He knew his people needed to see him bring food out of nowhere and water out of a rock 
God knew his people needed to be backed into a corner. He knew his people needed to face insurmountable odds because, listen to this, he knew his people needed to see him perform on their behalf before they were ready to perform on his. Now you might be wondering, then why does it say at the end of verse 18 that the people left Egypt equipped for battle? Well, in Hebrew, that literally means that they left in formation. It's a way of saying it was an orderly exodus. Most scholars think they probably went all out by tribe. But the point is, even if they did have armor and, and weapons, just because they were equipped for battle doesn't mean they were ready for it. I could give your seven-year-old a, a helmet and a gun, and they would be equipped for battle, but that doesn't mean they'd be ready. In other words, brothers and sisters, wherever you are, your God has you right where He wants you to be because His way is always prudent. If you feel like your life is headed in the wrong direction, God's way is always best because He wants you to find security in Him. Or maybe you feel like you've been backed up against the Red Sea. God's way is always best because He wants you to find strength and endurance in Him, not in your circumstances. Even if you found yourself in the midst of, of the wilderness where you are watching loved ones die, spiritually or even physically, Know this, saint, even there in the valley of the shadow of death, God's way is always best because He wants you to have a hope and a peace that can only be found in Him. And He wants those things, listen, He wants those things for you because He has plans for you. Plans that require you to have a foundation that's only found in Him. Plans that, that have a prerequisite that your hope and peace be found in Him. Know this, brother or sister, wherever God has you today, His way is best because His way is always prudent. How do I know this? Well, just look at verse 19 again where we see that God's way is always prudent because God's way is always full of promise. It's always full of promise. He said in verse 19, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, because Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you. You shall carry up my bones with you from here. Now, what Moses is describing in verse 19, it goes back about 450 years to Joseph's death in Genesis chapter 50. You see, in Genesis chapter 50, Joseph knew he was about to check out. And so he told his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land that he swore to Abraham to bring you up to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. That's what Joseph told his brothers like 450 years ago. So somehow, Joseph knew things weren't going to always go well for his people in Egypt. But in Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in, or in verse 22, it explains, By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. He knew God was going to do something. You guys are good Christians. 
You're here in church on a Sunday. It's cold outside. You could have stayed home. So when you hear about the Israelites complaining or, or questioning God about which direction he's guiding him, you know the right answer. Chuckle a little bit. Say something like, you know, we're still the same as them. We still struggle when we get into difficult situations. You know that's the right answer, but I want to push back on that a little bit. Why are we still just like Israel? Why do we still question God's guidance when things don't go how we want them to? When things get scary or difficult or dark, why? Why do we still question God's movement and direction? Because the Bible is very clear that all these things happened for us. The Bible says that God's people experienced these things going in seemingly the wrong direction so that we could have a written record of God's faithfulness to His promises, especially when things were difficult. Just like Moses wrote this book to people who were already in the promised land, he wrote it so that they could look back and remember their parents telling them the story, listen, son, we didn't know what was going on. We were headed in the wrong direction. We got backed up against an ocean, and God made a way. That truth still is for us today. That we could read these stories and know, even in the darkest of times, God had a plan. He promised us. So my question is, why do we still react that way? Why do we still react with panic and denial and doubt when we find ourselves in the midst of trials? And I'm not asking a rhetorical question. I'm asking it legitimately. Why? Let me explain by way of basketball analogy, because that's all I got. I'm sorry. There is in basketball, let me, let me start by saying this. In basketball, as well as any other sport, the further that an athlete progresses in organized play, the more they begin to recognize a principle that's inherent to the game. And that principle is, is reflexes. Meaning, in basketball, you don't have time to think about every little detail and, and movement before you make a decision. The game's too fast. So you have to train your reflexes for the game so that not only do you do things, but you do things the right way without thinking about it. For example, you don't walk onto a basketball court the first time inherently knowing how to get into the right position for what's going to happen three passes from now. Nor do you, you, you start playing basketball um, able to just feel the movement of the other players so you could throw them the ball without looking. No, those are reflexes that are developed over time. Things you don't even think about because you've done it so much. However, those reflexes have to be developed intentionally because they're not natural. Those reflexes have to be intentionally developed by consciously thinking about what you're doing while you do it a thousand times until it becomes a reflex. This is where drills come in, where you take one small element of a game and you just do it over and over and over and over again until it becomes a reflex. Well, the same is true spiritually. You see, too many Christians, they don't take the time to intentionally develop spiritual reflexes by breaking the pattern of panic and doubt when circumstances don't go their way. 
They don't bother to intentionally think about and remember God's promises and then react in faith until that reaction becomes a reflex. Listen, we need to develop better spiritual reflexes. And in order to do that, we have to think intentionally about what's going on. When things don't go our way, when those feelings of doubt and panic begin to set in, we as Christians need to develop a trigger in our mind that says, Stop. Just for a second, stop. Remember God's promises. Remember all the different places in Scripture that, that he's, he's shown us what to do and trust that He is faithful. And we need to do that until that reaction becomes a reflex. And don't get me wrong, that doesn't mean we're not going to know where we're going. That doesn't mean our circumstances are going to get any better. No, that's not the point. The point is, is that we develop a reflex of trust instead of doubt. Because we've paid attention and we know God's promises. Because listen, brothers and sisters, God's word is full of instances just like this, where his people found themselves somewhere they didn't want to be or expect to be. God's word is full of instances where things didn't turn out the way his people wanted them to, yet God was always faithful to his promises. God's people didn't want to take the wilderness road to the promised land. But that's where they experienced God's faithfulness to His promise to show them His power and protection. God's people didn't expect to have to fight giants and, and, and well-established armies when they got to the promised land, but that's where they experienced God fighting for them. I mean, they literally just walked around a city a couple of times and the city just fell over. They wouldn't have experienced that if they hadn't gone the way God wanted them to go. God's people didn't expect their Savior to be born in a barn to an impoverished couple in a backwood town of Bethlehem. Nobody comes from Bethlehem. That certainly didn't seem like the right direction, but listen to me when I say that's where God's people experienced Emmanuel. God with us. Wouldn't have had it if it didn't go that way. And God's people certainly didn't expect their Messiah, the warrior king that God had promised to save them from their enemies. They certainly didn't expect him to die a humiliating death on a cross. That was wrong. That can't happen. This is totally the wrong direction. But in those darkest hours, in that, in that darkest shadow of the valley of death, that's where God's people experienced his faithfulness to his promise to show them a grace they could have never imagined. Brothers and sisters, it does not matter where you are. God's way is best because his way is always full of his promises. He has promised to never test you beyond what he can handle. He has promised to always give you a way out of sin. He has promised to always show you good and do you good, even if it's the uncomfortable kind of good of a father disciplining his child. Because he has promised to grow you and sanctify you into a better image of Christ. God's way is always best. Because his way is always prudent and his way is always full of promise. Which brings us 
to the last part of our passage this morning. Look at verse 20 through 22 again, where we see that not only is God's way always full of promise, but His greatest promise is that His way is always full of His presence. He says in verse 20, And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham, on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Now there's two important things I want you to see in these last three verses. The first thing is that no matter where they went, the Lord went before them. Meaning God wasn't asleep on His cushion while His people got lost in the desert whereafter He had to then lead them out when He woke up. No. God was leading them exactly where He wanted them to go. He always went before them. In other words, listen, you see, when we find ourselves in those places in life where things seem out of control, where things seem to go sideways, not as planned, difficult, hard, we're prone to think that some cosmic, cosmic accident has taken place, like the world has conspired against us. Like God has fallen asleep at the wheel, so we question why we're there. And then we begin to pray for Him to relieve us from the discomfort that we found ourselves in by accident. But you know what rarely crosses our minds in those, in those times? When we're in those circumstances that feel like the world has conspired against us, we rarely think that God led us there intentionally. For a good reason. To teach us something or to show us something about himself we wouldn't have learned otherwise. And what makes it worse, this, this, this is one thing in the church that always makes it worse, is when we find ourselves in those places after we think we've been doing what God wanted us to. After we've been obedient. I've been diligent in my and even sacrificial in my tithing. Why can't I make ends meet? I've, I've been faithfully proclaiming the gospel at work. Why did I get fired? I, I've raised my children in the Lord, teaching them the gospel and right from wrong as best I could. How could they reject all this? Those kind of situations are are when this becomes especially difficult because it exposes a false gospel that is rampant in the church. It's called the goodness gospel. It's the gospel that says if I obey the Lord, things will turn out how I want them to. It's the gospel that says if I do things right, everything will be okay. If that's you this morning, listen, I want to point out two errors in that thinking. Two errors about that thinking, that if we do something right, things will turn out good. The first error is this. God is never in your debt. God is never in your debt. God never owes you anything for your performance. Listen, be very careful. 
about holding God to promises that you made on his behalf. Let me say that again. Be very careful about holding God to promises that you made on his behalf. And the other error is this. The assumption of the goodness gospel is that we know what's best for us. Meaning we assume that peace and security and and everything working out is what's best for us. In other words, listen, what we see in this story is the need to remember something when we find ourselves in those circumstances that feel like something's gone wrong. We need to remember that just like Israel, God led you there. You're not there by accident. God has intentionally led you to financial hardship. He's led you to difficult employment circumstances. He's led you to parenting heartaches. Those are the two errors that that come from this idea of not recognizing that God has led you places, which leads to the second thing that I want you to see in these three short verses. And that is that in those desolate, dangerous places God led His people, He never left them. He led them there, and then He never left them. Look at verse 22, the end. It says, The pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night, did not depart from before the people. In fact, in the next chapter, it's the story about them crossing the Red Sea. But when the Egyptians had Israel cornered, the pillar of fire swung around back and held the Egyptians off until they could all cross safely. When Israel found themselves being attacked in the desert, the pillar of fire was there. When Israel found themselves hungry and thirsty in the desert, the pillar of fire was there. When Israel found themselves reconquering the promised land, the pillar of fire was there. He never left their presence. He never said, that's it, this is scary, I'm out, good luck. Never said that. Until one day, listen, until one day that pillar of fire was born. That pillar of fire was born, came into the presence of us as a baby in Bethlehem. The light literally came into the world. Then this pillar of fire led those who would follow him in the ways of righteousness. Then this pillar of fire led those who would follow him to his father. Until finally this pillar of fire led those who believed in him out of the wilderness of their sin by dying on the cross. Never left. He still didn't leave his people after he died. He still didn't. When Peter had to testify in front of the Sanhedrin, the pillar of fire was there. When Stephen had to testify in front of the mob that stoned him, the pillar of fire was there. And when Paul testified to cities who beat him and and councils who stoned him and even emperors who executed him, the pillar of fire was there. Listen to me when I tell you this, brothers and sisters. God's way is best because His way is always prudent. He has a reason for where He's taken you. God's way is best because His way is always full of promise. There is so much promise found in darkness. For us to see who our God is and see Him working on our behalf. And listen, brother or sister, wherever God has you is best because that's where you're going to experience His greatest promise. His promise that that His way is always full of His presence. 
that he will always be with you. If you find yourself backed up against the Red Sea of life, with your enemy bearing down on you, the pillar of fire is there with you. If you find yourself in the desolate deserts of life, in need, the pillar of fire is there with you. If you find yourself alone, you're hungry for fellowship and friendship, the pillar of fire is there. But not just there. You find yourself in a courtroom, the pillar of fire is there. You find yourself in a hospital, the pillar of fire is there. You find yourself in a funeral home, the pillar of fire is there. But it's not even just there. If you find yourself in an unhealthy marriage, the pillar of fire is there to lead you out. If you find yourself in a relationship that you ruined, the pillar of fire is there to lead you out. Listen, if, if you find yourself being drug along the pavement of the consequences of your own sin and weakness, the pillar of fire is there to lead you out. It never leaves you, ever. Because your God, your Savior, this pillar of fire, Jesus Christ said, I will never leave you or forsake you, ever. Which means His way is always best. Because His way is always prudent, because His way is always full of His promises, and He is always with us, no matter where He leads us or where He takes us. Darkness or light, He's always with us.